Welcome to Start By Listening, the podcast about sexual harm and trauma. We are centered on educating and empowering our Western Kentucky communities. Our goal is to transform the way we talk about sexual harm and trauma. Transformation begins by listening to understand. We talk so you can listen today and change the world tomorrow. Welcome, everyone, to Start By Listening. It's Jennifer, your friendly therapist, with my co-pilot, co-host, main partner in crime, Shelby Selsky. How are you doing today, Shelby? Wonderful. Hello, everybody. I'm glad you're joining us for a wonderful episode today. Oh, my gosh. Guys, gals, people, dogs, cats, whoever's listening. Um, We have an amazing guest here today with us. I am so honored to bring to our podcast, Dr. Jim Tidwell. He is the vice president for population health at Owensboro Health, and he's also a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. And so welcome, Dr. Tidwell. We are so glad to have you today. Yes, thank you for being here. Thank you, Jennifer and Shelby. I'm I'm happy to be here. I know when I uh, had emailed you and then we met and I approached you, most people are kind of like, what is this? A podcast in Owensboro? And you guys, he was awesome. I talked a lot about new beginnings and we talked a lot about the health of our community. And Dr. Tidwell, would you just kind of give us an introduction to who you are and your current role at this, one of the largest employers in the Western part of Kentucky and probably one of the largest providers of healthcare. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really fortunate to be a part of uh, the Owensboro health organization. I, um, I came to Owensboro about seven and a half years ago, was recruited uh, uh, as a reconstructive surgeon to, to help uh, uh my partner and I uh, started a, a reconstructive surgery program. Uh, we mostly focused on breast reconstruction, following a um, following treatment for for breast cancer. Um, but but soon uh, we're you know involved in in wound care and uh, facial trauma, hand trauma, uh, and any kind of reconstructive procedure needed. So um, it was really really uh, cool to be able to to bring that uh, what would be a, a new practice uh, for our organization. Um, but uh, about three, three and a half years ago, I uh, took on this role as vice president of population health. Um, the I had a, a big kind of life change and we're going to talk about trauma today, but uh, I had a, a spinal cord injury that left me uh, with uh, with uh, a condition called quadriplegia, where uh, my arms and and legs and uh, you know are, are are impaired. I sit in a wheelchair now and and uh, have limited function with my with my hands and arms. But uh, uh, so I don't I don't operate anymore. I, I do see patients in in clinic. I see my partners post op patients, and I help set patients up. Uh, for surgery uh, for them, but but my main role now has has become uh, uh, kind of the overseer of our population health efforts in our organization. And that, you know, in short, what I like to tell people is that population health is um, 
is what we do as a healthcare system outside of of the walls of our hospitals and clinics. So all of our efforts to help people be healthy, um, so that we're not so that we're not treating them uh, in our clinics and, and hospitals. I guess if if I could do my job perfectly, I'd, I'd put our organization out of out of business because people would would just be healthy. I feel like that's a very popular nonprofit saying is we're, we're all here to work ourselves out of the job. Yeah. Right. So population health, that was a perfect segue into trauma. So my, my first question really has everything to do with your job is how do you see trauma and health correlate within our community? Well, I, I think the most important, um, realization that I've had in, in this role is that we need to uh, we need to do better as a healthcare organization of um, of helping people who are well stay well and then identifying those those people who who have had uh, you know adverse events in, in their lives uh, you know be it uh, you know, physical or, or mental illness, um, you know, and we, and we need to, uh, to do what we can to, uh, to, to help people heal. Ooh, I love that. That is, that is beautiful. Um, I'm curious, like my wheels are turning. That's why I pause because I get all these like thoughts and ideas and questions. Um, when you took on your new position at Owensboro Health, you know, you talked about trauma, you know, you yourself being a survivor of a traumatic experience. Um, what is probably the most surprising thing that you have learned in this role regarding um, the mental health of the communities that we serve? Well, that's a uh, that's a, a loaded question because, uh, as as we all know, um, you know, we we had uh, a great deal of uh, mental mental health uh, illness prior to the COVID nineteen pandemic, and I think uh, as any as any traumatic event. Uh, might do the pandemic uh, really um, was influential in in causing a lot of uh, additional uh, mental health issues, uh, uh, men- mental health uh, needs. And while we recognized the need even prior to that event or or uh, you know pandemic, uh, it just um, increased exponentially and that's I guess not terribly surprising but uh, but can almost seem overwhelming at times uh, to, to recognize the need that we have to uh, in, in our communities and it's not just uh, you know it's not just our community here in, in Owensboro Kentucky Davis County but it's everywhere that we've looked at uh, health needs assessments. Mental health is is coming to the top of those uh, assessments as as 
maybe the greatest healthcare need that we have uh, uh, right now. It, it rivals, you know, uh, common things like substance abuse and and um, you know most uh, most of us Americans. Uh, and I'm speaking for myself. Uh, carry some some extra weight, and uh, you know that's a that's a pandemic in and of itself. But but mental health issues uh, and those that that healthcare need has has even surfaced to the top among those other uh, widely recognized needs. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, when I first moved back to Owensboro in 2010, I, I left in 94 when I graduated high school and I went away from school, went to Louisville, Kentucky and went to Bellarmine and went to Spalding University came back home in 2010 and uh, I did a brief stint in the emergency room as their weekend social worker as I was completing my BSN for nursing. Um, and then I moved from there to the ICU as the nurse case manager. Um, and I remember distinctly being in the ER on the weekends and like the need of like trauma. And back then I, I really, I didn't understand trauma. I was, you know, I was a social worker. In the two, early 2000s, nobody talked about trauma. You know, it's like, what's trauma? But the people that would come in and have like so many somatic problems, migraines, um, IBS, constipation, um, general uh, fatigue. And I would be like, wow, it seems like our emergency room is now being used, you know, like as just a primary care doctor, which I know that's one of the things Onsville Health has really worked on so hard by opening up different clinics to kind of funnel people to, uh, I think, more appropriate, right, ways of, of getting their healthcare needs met. And I'm curious, because you talked about the pandemic, what has the hospital seen in the last three years as far as um, clients, excuse, I call them clients, patients being able to access the correct avenue of healthcare, so that our ER and our hospitals can be not flooded, you know, with like earaches and um, things of that nature. That's just something I was curious about. If you have any information about that, well, you're you're exactly right. Um, a lot of people and kind of the the younger generation of folks in, uh, included in that um, do like to to you know um, have have their needs met immediately, and so sometimes that that translates in, into um, you know seeking care at. Um, an emergency room or perhaps in an urgent care setting uh, because um, that's just kind of the way life is for, for most people now in, in this, uh, you know, highly, um, you know, consumer based uh, uh, world that we live in is like, uh, you know, if all of a sudden I have an earache, I want, I want to be treated all of a sudden um, just, uh, just like uh, so many other things that we are are demanding of in in society, and and so yeah, we we 
do recognize that. And, and in addition to that, um, you know, there are, there are a number of people who just don't, uh, you know, don't have a primary care doctor and, and maybe haven't been connected to, to, to any kind of health care. And there's a significant percentage of people who, who are seen in the emergency room who have mental health issues. And that, that contributes perhaps to, uh, to people not, uh, not being well established with a, with a primary care doctor. So part of it, what we've done is recognize the barriers to, uh, to receiving good uh, preventative primary care and and so we've uh, really worked to expand the number of, of primary care providers that we have, and to put them, uh, you know, spread them throughout, you know, geographically, uh, our our service area, so that uh, so that they're more accessible. Um, one thing that the pandemic taught us is that a lot of healthcare can be done pretty effectively, in, in particular. Uh, treating treating mental health issues um, can be done pretty well uh, over uh, you know through technology doing telehealth visits and so that has that has provided access for a lot of people who maybe they couldn't have come come into the clinic sorry I can hear someone's singing too loud. <laughs> yeah it's like great it's like I mean, that's what it's authentic. It's like, it's, uh, that's pretty organic <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, telehealth has, has uh, been something that came out of the pandemic that, um, that we're using much more than, than we used to, but great question. You know, that, that remains maybe the, the biggest, um, challenge for hospitals uh, and uh, across the country that's uh, a that's a very expensive way to to provide uh, preventative care uh, primary care is, is in the emergency room so um, you know getting people getting people connected with a primary care provider is, is just so important so as you were talking I wanted to bring up like barriers to care that primary care which is why a lot of people are clearly seen in the ER and the one barrier that I heard you mention is accessibility location so that goes into transportation Um, what other barriers are you seeing and what interventions are you leading from your position I mean as looking at community health as a whole are you a part of any of those initiatives and what are they? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned transportation. I'll give you I'll give you one example here that's uh, that's close to home. My my office is physically located uh, above the Owensboro Health uh, Urgent Care uh, on on um, Ford Avenue, and that building is connected to our health park and um, some of our some of our other. Uh, um, offices here and what we saw a week or two ago was that the bus route changed and the uh, the closest uh, bus drop off um, to to the urgent care to the to the uh, clinics that are here in this building uh, was actually we, we had a 
physical kind of shelter, you know, a little bus stop uh, shelter. It was removed kind of all of a sudden. And, and, uh, and we saw a notification that the, that the bus route had changed and recognizing that it was, uh, you know, that that was, that is an issue in, in terms of that creates a, a new barrier for, for those who are seeking uh, help um, at the urgent care or just on the floor above me is where we have our audiology services and our behavioral health uh, clinic. So anybody, you know, who is using uh, the bus system for, for their transportation to their, to their care. We also have a, you know, um, full lab and, and radiology uh, services down there you know the bus system the bus route changed and so we we really reached out and and I have to give credit to to Debbie Zerner on the on the side of our community uh, engagement uh, team but uh she really advocated with the city manager and said hey this is you know what are you what are you doing and um and they have uh they have figured that that out they've they've reinstated a um a route that they're going to you know, they, they do their analysis of, of how much it's used and whatnot, but, but that's just, you know, one uh, close to home and very recent example of how we advocate for, um, for, for people and trying to overcome those things that we know are, are barriers to, uh, to access. So that's a long answer and I haven't quite answered your question, but I, I did want to, to affirm that, yeah, transportation is, is one of those issues. Uh, there may be there may be folks out there who who uh, care for children or for or are caring for their grandchildren uh, while while their children work and um, and those type of things can prevent somebody from from being able to go into a clinic um, and so you know with that in mind we've we've uh, explored the option of of creating a, an at home. Uh, uh, practice, uh, be it an, uh, a nurse practitioner or a physician who could could make visits to people in their in their homes, overcoming that that uh, that barrier. Uh, we're not we're not quite there with with some of the things that we'd like to do, but, but we're certainly exploring those those options. You know, as as you were talking about transportation, I mean, kudos to you all for noticing it and getting that change, the bus stops. Um, we have a staff member here that routinely writes to the Owensboro Transit System and lobbies for covered bus stops at every bus stop. Um, so that's one of her ways that she does community advocacy. We don't lobby, we advocate, we're a nonprofit. Um, gosh, I said the wrong word, didn't you I? You did, we don't lobby, we advocate. That's right, okay, <laughs> Boca, don't come after me, Vala, don't come after me. Uh, those are our big federal grants, Dr. Tidwell. Um, back in 2009-2010, just give a little information. As I was completing uh, my nursing degree in the state of Kentucky, you have to do like 120 hours, you know, after you take your boards, etc., to get your degree. And I was working at the Macaulay Free Clinic, which is no longer around. And I can't remember if you came after that 
dissolved and became the primary now, or I, I don't remember how all that works, but this was very interesting. And um, I've been a social worker since the early 2000s. And the free clinic was an amazing place. And it was a first come, first serve. We did not have appointments because this was even before Epic came on board. So that's predating. And I remember um, pulling into the parking lot, getting to work at, you know, 730 to get ready. And people just from one county, I'm going to say Ohio County, okay? People from Ohio County would leave their home at 4 a.m. to drive to Owensboro to sit and wait in the hallway at the Daniel Patino shelter in order to be able to be seen for free healthcare services. And we also had like a little on-site, you know, pharmacy. So we also provided medications. Um, like a pharmacy would, two patients. And there was one gentleman in particular who really just, you know, we all have those patients and clients that leave a lasting impression. And when I say to you, he drove a jalopy, like a jalopy that had no headlights. This man used a flashlight, Dr. Tidwell, uh, hanging his hand out of the window driving from Ohio County at 4 a.m. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, in response to your question, I, I did arrive before the Macaulay Clinic uh, was moved, and, and um, I don't know how long it was there, uh, how, how um, or exactly when it moved, but... Uh, but you're right. It was kind of absorbed by uh, what is now the Audubon Area Community Clinic, and uh, and it's located over over there by the by the crazy busy uh, Chick Fil A, um, <laughs> yeah. Fredericum, and and that is uh, now the area that uh, where where people can go for uh, uh, for healthcare, regardless of of their ability to uh, to pay. And um, we we support that that clinic, but it is run by the Ottoman Area Community Services, which is a community action um, um, agency. Um, I should I should mention that I've that I, that I've had conversations with our um, with our residency director. So Owensboro Health three years ago. Um, uh, began a, a residency training program to train family medicine uh, residents. And they, they train for three years after they've completed medical school. And, and then they can uh, be eligible to, to be uh, boarded by the American uh, Association of, of Family Practitioners. And, um, and, and so we were super excited to, uh, to be able to, to train family practice uh, physicians, and we now have a cohort of so there's six each year. So we we now have eighteen who are in training. That the first group will be will be graduating in June uh, of this coming year, and 
and they they are very interested in in creating a, a clinic similar to the Audubon area or what was uh, the Macaulay Clinic, and maybe even taking that on the road, so to speak, where we where we have a, a mobile clinic unit and they staff that and, and provide that care and get and get people who need healthcare uh, kind of plugged into uh, the healthcare system. Awesome. Yeah, but, and I, I wanted to share that story because I think it's just, it's one of those moments and anybody that's ever worked in healthcare, we all have those moments where we meet someone that really does change our life. And that man of how he persevered, right? And the things he did in order to get his health met. Um, I, I could tell you like a thousand more stories about my experiences there. And it was just lovely. It was just lovely. Um, I think it's the way general practice, family medicine it needs to be where, you know, it's kind of like the old show Cheers where everybody knows your name, you know? So like when somebody walks in, it's not just, okay, uh, Joe Smith, you know, it's like, hey, Joe, it's so good to see you. How are you? And he really developed those meaningful relationships, which leads to meaningful education about disease processes, which leads to education about medication management. And as you well know, it, it just, it's a beautiful thing. It's like what we do here when we do crisis sessions, when we do therapy, we talk about coping skills and we talk about ways to regulate the nervous system to help your body be able to go through stress and it's through connection with others that's I think is one of the key pieces for healthcare in the future if we can get back there um, that make a difference absolutely Jennifer and I, I think um, I, I think we are on a trajectory to where um, where primary care is becoming uh, is is better recognized as uh, for for its importance. Um, you know, in my role, coming from a, a subspecialized surgical specialty, um, I, I was you couldn't have been in healthcare and been more more uh, removed from the primary care setting than 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 I was, perhaps. And um, so these last three, three and a half years in serving in this role have really taught me or helped me remember uh, that that primary care is the is the real heart of of healthcare. And that's uh, I really believe strongly that everyone should have a, a primary care physician. Um, you know and, and if it's somebody that they only need to see, uh, periodically during their you know healthy youthful years then then so be it but i i feel like everyone should be kind of plugged into the healthcare system through a, a primary care provider oh yeah i agree <laughs> i agree but i'm gonna be fully transparent here uh the first time i ever saw a primary care provider from the time I turned like 16 was uh, last year. <laughs> and I told my husband, I was like, I will see a doctor 
if you see a therapist. And uh, that was the deal. So I went to the doctor and I was like, aha, primary care. I'm adulting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, Shelby. And, and you know, I think that that um, is a prevalent uh, attitude that, you know, uh, doctors are probably the worst uh, of, of uh, you know, um, I, I didn't see uh uh, a primary care doctor like like you Shelby for for a lot of years um uh, now of course after I after I got hurt and and I have a few more healthcare needs uh, that are that are chronic um I I do uh I do see my uh, I do see my providers uh, kind of on a on a good schedule but uh, uh I think during our our young and healthy years, like like you two are in, um, you know, it's it's harder <laughs> because you just uh, you just just uh, don't make it a priority typically until until we're sick, and then and then we want we want access right away, and uh, and I think that's I think there's a role for for urgent cares and 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 of course for the emergency room, but but uh, you know it it'd be good for all of us to be. Uh, uh, kind of plugged into the into the system through a primary care provider, especially as we as we get older and have, have greater healthcare needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, nothing says embarrassment uh, or shame, literally, figuratively, metaphorically, like um, when you move from Louisville to Owensboro, you don't have time to find a primary. You go to work all weekend sick in the ER and you know that you got a big problem and now you got to go back. And now the people that you've worked with are going to see you in a vulnerable space. And Dr. Hobelman walks in and says, well, Jennifer, why don't you have a primary care position? <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I mean, I like Dr. I don't even know if he's still with Owens Real Health or not, but at the time he was, and I really liked him. And I said, yeah, that's on my to-do list, but I am really sick right now and I need something. Tell me what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So Dr. Tidwell, the differences in what you did um in the plastic and reconstructive surgery compared to now, what are the Differing traumas because reconstructive surgery. I'm assuming that you saw people with burns, uh, bites, like very horrible physical traumas compared to the general traumas that we're facing at a community level. Like, how's the difference in looking at them and treating them, basically? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. As a um, you know, to become a plastic surgeon, you you train typically for for several years as a as a general surgeon uh and then and then do uh, additional training in in uh in plastic surgery and so um on the general surgery side of my training i saw all you know just the whole the whole spectrum of of physical you know physical trauma from uh from uh terrible car wreck uh you know injuries that resulted from from car wrecks to uh, blunt trauma to sharp trauma to uh, you know gun violence uh, just the, just the whole spectrum 
uh, you see in your training. And then as I, as I focused my training to, uh, to plastic and reconstruct, uh, reconstructive surgery, uh, mostly I was seeing uh, uh, wounds that were secondary to blunt trauma, um, a lot of facial trauma, um, as well as uh, trauma to the hand. And, and um, there, is a, there is a real, uh, in addition to the physical element uh, that is certainly present with, with those kinds of traumatic events, uh, there's, a, there's a real emotional uh, kind of mental side of, of things. And, and it's, it's that part that translates uh, pretty well to, to what I see now in, uh, in my role, you know, uh, patients who, who, um, you know, are struggling with housing, with keeping the electric, uh, with, with keeping the, the lights on, you know, not, not having their utilities cut off, uh, that, that creates a, a level of trauma as you're, as you're well aware, um, that is that is similar to to what I would consider the emotional or, or mental uh, part of, of a physically traumatic event, um, but but that is the kind of trauma that I that I see now are, are these uh, just adverse conditions that that people have, whether it's limited access to to healthcare or or uh, housing or uh, relationships, um, you know, you, you name it, there are just so many, so many factors that influence our, our health. And, um, and we are, we certainly are as an organization trying to, to put more focus on, on those factors. We, we refer to, we refer to many of them as, um, as social determinants of, of health or uh, social drivers of health, you know, recognizing that, that a person's relationships at home, uh, that a person's housing and living situation, a person's uh, transportation, their, their access to education and socioeconomic uh, uh, position, you know, all of those things influence a person's health and, and may in many people influence their health much more uh, strongly than what we do in our clinics or or in the hospital. Are you actually a social worker? Because you're talking about the ecosystem so, 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 uh, sociological model of uh, social work. I'm yeah, studying it right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not a social worker, but um, but absolutely the the work that social workers do and case managers. Um, is just invaluable um, in, in terms of helping helping people be be healthy. Hmm. It sounds like that throughout your entire medical career that you really have had an opportunity to witness so many different um, levels and types of traumas and. Uh, looking at the holistic, right, of the person. Um, if you had a magic wand, and here's my magic wand. <laughs> this is what <laughs> this is this is what I use in therapy. 
I'll say, okay. And I'll have my client hold it like, poof, poof. Like if you had a magic wand, Dr. Tidwell, and you could envision like the best um, system of healthcare that would truly encompass the holistic view and money wasn't an object. Um, barriers, you know, could be removed. And I'm asking the big million dollar question as they call it in social work. How would you like to see the future of healthcare as a system meet the needs of survivors of trauma? And all of us as human beings are survivors of a trauma of some form. So yeah, what that's my like creative, like, boom, magic wand question. So my magic wand would be made of poplar and it would have either a uh, unicorn uh, heartstring in it or, or a phoenix feather. I, I'm a big uh, Harry Potter, Harry Potter fan. fan. <laughs> yep, I was going to ask. <laughs> no, no um, uh, you know, I, what I think would be the most effective um, means of, of helping people be healthier wouldn't necessarily be a, 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 a dramatic, huge change in the healthcare system, but um, but it would be helping helping people um, make better choices. That's really what uh, a lot of healthcare is about: is is empowering people to to make healthy choices um, you know I, I recently visited with a, a lifestyle medicine doctor uh, named uh, Dr. Scott Black who's just one of our superstars in the organization and um, you know, he spent an hour talking to me about uh, healthy and nutritious foods and and getting enough fiber in my diet and and uh, finding finding means to to exercise and and it was really motivational to meet with him. He probably didn't say anything that I didn't really know already, but uh, but but it was very very motivating uh, to to meet with him and uh, and that's what I think healthcare needs to do for people is is empower them to um, to to make to make good decisions. I think, a, I think a lot of our healthcare needs arise from, um, you know, from our, from our poor choices. You know, there's always going to be car wrecks and always going to be crazy, you know, tumors that, are, that, that show up and, you know, from, from genetic problems or, or whatever. Uh, we're always going to have some, some illness, but, but so much of, of the, of the illnesses that we see, be it cardiovascular disease or uh, obesity and diabetes, and uh, you know, are, are are largely due to to our choices. So, my magic wand would be something that I would I would use on on individuals to uh, to help motivate and and empower them with regards to uh, 
uh, owning owning their own health and and taking care of it. Mm, that's beautiful. Um, as you were saying that, Shelby, I don't know if your brain was clicking as well, but I think it probably was. It's I looked over and I could see like hmm, that's what we do at New Beginnings. Yeah, motivation and empowerment. The humanistic approach to big things. Mm-hmm. Yep, to make best dis- choices and best decisions um, for them. And we call that uh, learning how to set boundaries with with people. We mm-hmm. call that learning how to say no. <laughs> learning how to rest. Learning how to find and develop co-regulation with a safe person or nature or an animal so that our nervous system can learn how to be calm and relaxed and safe. Yeah. I'd also say building resilience so that you're more likely to reach for those healthy coping skills rather than the easy self-destructive ones. Yeah, great point. Building resilience. I love that important how do you think we could develop that kind of a model dr tidwell of empowering medical medical now patients to make healthy decisions and choices because the reason i ask that is because i see in a fabulous nurse practitioner i love my nurse practitioner and she takes her time and i know the needs are great and the availability of providers are so, I mean, it's so small. And some people only get the opportunity to talk with their provider like 15 minutes. So how, how would that, this beautiful way, it's very simple and I love it. How, how can we make that like a reality? You know, I think um, uh, giving, giving the patient, as many tools as, as we, as we can, um, and, and helping them, um, I like to use that, that phrase to, to, to own it them, themselves. Uh, you know, I, as I first started this role, I remember, um, thinking through, like, if I had, if I had a huge budget, you know, what would I, what would I do to, to try to, uh, accomplish, you know, what I, what I want to in, in my role. And, and part of what I would love to do is, is to just educate people and kind of help them understand that, uh, that, that healthcare isn't something that's so terribly complicated that they can't own, own their own, um, uh, health, so to speak. You know, if, if a, di- if a patient with diabetes, um, you know, for example, a patient with diabetes uh, should know what their hemoglobin A1C is. Um, it's and that and that's a lab test that kind of kind of reflects how well their blood sugars have been controlled over the previous two to three months. And and every person with diabetes should should. Um, should probably know what what their hemoglobin A1C is, and 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 empowering a person to understand um, to, to to understand how diabetes 
makes their uh, body unable to to regulate uh, uh, the the sugar in their in their bloodstream. Uh, either they're insulin resistant with type two diabetes, or or they don't produce any insulin at all with type one. And uh, you know that that education, um, I think. I think it really does allow somebody to to grab a hold of the kind of the reins uh, on their on their life, you know, um, and and so I I I think a lot about uh, about trying to help patients uh, understand well enough that they feel like they can they can be the the driver, you know, be in the driver's seat when it comes to to their own health. And I really, I really think everybody's entitled to that, uh, and and we should uh, work towards really helping uh, educate people. I think that in, empowers people. I say educate people with regards to their uh, to their health needs and and what's available. Putting data in their hands, uh, you know, making sure that they're uh, that they're seeing their. Uh, the results of their different tests in a timely way, being transparent in our in our documentation. You know, now you're probably aware that a, a patient is uh, is able to see if if you saw me today uh, within within a certain number of days, you would be able to look up you know the note that I documented uh, uh, in your medical record. Uh, uh, our encounter, and uh, and I I love that that uh, healthcare is becoming more and more transparent like that. It really is putting putting the control uh, in the hands of of the patient. I love that transparency. It's a very trauma informed approach, rather than let me just take this blood. It's this is what I'm doing with it, and this is why we think this is important. Yeah. Very effective. I love it. So Jennifer, I think this is a good segue. I thought it was an amazing answer, Dr. Tidwell. We're coming up to an hour here. How would you feel if we did some super fun rapid fire questions? Okay. I'll do my best. best. Jennifer, what do you think? Do you think this is a good time for it? think so or do you uh, have anything else you'd like to add yeah yeah d- there you go dr Tibble, is there anything you didn't get to say before we bombard your neurons in your brain with some crazy fun questions is there anything you didn't get to say that you would like to say no i don't think so we really uh covered a lot of ground here in the last uh in the last few minutes and and i'm um I'm trying to prepare myself for these uh, rapid fire questions. You know, I'm kind of a slow, slow talker and slow thinker, but uh, I'll, I'll do my best to, to answer these. You're going to do beautiful and we just call it rapid fire. We're not really going to go, but, you know, <laughs> but they're just fun questions that have nothing to do with our topic. And it's just a way to kind of shake it off. <laughs> Wind down after trauma talk. Yeah. <laughs> Shelby, do you want to ask the first question? Or do you want me to? Okay. Dr. Tidwell, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Oh, you know, uh, just walking feels like a superpower. And, uh, you know, you're asking a quadriplegic. But, uh, but yeah, I'd love to have a, 
just a really fit, strong body again. Mm-hmm. Um, that would feel very much like a superpower to me. Uh, all of you able-bodied folks out there, yeah, that's how you should feel, is that you have a, a superpower and a super body. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. Powered by informed practices and healthy decisions to keep our bodies in the best way possible. Yeah, absolutely. All right. What is your favorite cereal? Oh, I I love um, Golden Grams, and um, and and I I can never find it anymore. But uh, one time I found a it was a Malta Meal cereal um, called called French Toasters, and it was like like French toast type. Uh, and I really love that, but uh, I don't I don't get to eat a whole lot of cereal but I certainly did in my in my younger days that was kind of my go-to meal (laughs) absolutely cereal's a good one so who is your favorite band or musician oh wow that's such a tough one I love I love people who write their own music who write and, and perform their own music I think there's a there's something uh, there's just like an added um, element of maybe it's emotion, experience, or or just humanity that comes out when somebody is singing something that they have written. So, so I love people like Paul Simon and uh, uh, John Denver. I love uh, um, uh, you know John Taylor. Um, there's there's actually um, people. People tease me a bit. Uh, my kids tease me. I, I, I say that I'm a Swifty. I, I like, I like Taylor Swift. Uh, she's a songwriter, singer. Um, so just uh, uh, anything along along the uh, that vein of a uh, singer songwriter. I love that. So I got to see Paul Simon live in Philadelphia when I was oh, 16. Wow. I was the youngest person in the entire audience, <laughs> but it was it was brilliant. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's that's awesome. I, I envy that experience. That's great. <laughs> what is your favorite gadget? Oh, um, favorite gadget. I, I you know what can compete with uh, you know a, a, a good smartphone and, <laughs> and all the wireless. Uh, you know, accessories, uh, the earbuds and, and, uh, you know, in, in, uh, I'll, I'll share something with you. My, my, in my bedroom, you know, I can't just, uh, jump up and turn on the fan or, or the lights, uh, you know, um, I'm, uh, once I, once I lay down in bed, I'm, I'm pretty well stuck there until I have some, some help getting up and back into my chair. So the ability to, to, turn on the lights by saying, Alexa, turn on the bedroom lights, you know, that's a, that's a big deal for me. And to be able to control things uh, um, that, that make life more, uh, uh, give me a bit more in, independence. Uh, mm-hmm. So all these uh, adaptive gadgets are, are great for me. Mm-hmm. I'm getting ready to get my first Alexa. I have yet to get one, but I'm getting ready to. 
Well, it can be it can be wonderful at times. It'll it uh, uh, can be a little annoying sometimes if she asks you, you know, do you want me to do this for you? And you're like, uh, no, I would have. <laughs> No, that's not what I asked you. <laughs> I'm thinking about accessibility so differently after this conversation. <laughs> but next question, where is your favorite place that you've been or would dream of traveling to? Um, during my training, uh, I, did, I did some fellowship training in both Belgium and in uh, Taiwan. Uh, there were centers that did a lot of uh, microvascular reconstructive surgery. And, and I, I took my family, I spent three months uh, in each of those hospitals. And, and Belgium was just incredible. Taiwan was as well uh, for, for many uh, different reasons. But being in Western Europe, kind of in the, in the center of Western Europe there in Belgium, uh, where where both you know the Western Front of both world wars uh, was there in in Belgium, and uh, I learned so much history and and uh, our kids we were kind of uh, quasi homeschooling our children you know at the time and and I feel like uh, uh, it was just a, a really special place where where a lot of history happened and. And and it was the gateway to to, uh, to to all of Western Europe. We were able to travel to to the UK, to France, to to Germany, uh, to Luxembourg, and uh, so that was a wonderful place. Uh, and and I, I'd, I'd encourage anybody who has the chance to uh, you know to travel that uh, that area of the world. It was, it was really fun. I'm sure that's amazing. Yeah. Europe is someplace I would love to go one day. I've yet to go, but I would love to. Do you have a favorite board game? A favorite board game? Two that just kind of um, jump to the top of my mind. Or There's one called Settlers of Catan. Yes. That, uh, love Catan. Yes. <laughs> i playing that. And um, uh, there's one called Ticket to Ride that I also also enjoy. <laughs> so I love Ticket to Ride. Um, when I got married, oh my gosh, I don't even know how long I've been married now. Is it five years or seven? I don't keep up with dates. But anyway, my husband, he is what you would call a collector. <laughs> And no joke when I tell you that we had to have library shelving built into a room that used to be what would be considered a formal dining room back in the 80s. Um, We had custom built shelving for all of his board games. Oh, awesome. (laughs) Yes. Um, And we have played Ticket to Ride. We haven't played Settlers yet, Um, but he loves Kickstart and he likes to go on there and you know like you pay some money for a kickstart campaign and he does it for board games and then they just kind of show up on our front porch uh, we're gonna have to have a game night i did not know this i'm learning stuff <laughs> oh yeah i don't think you've been to my house shall because i think you start yes you started way after and 
we had a lot, the last staff retreat at my house and it was mm-hmm. in February in 2020. So yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Dr. Tidwell, you're invited. We'll play games. All right. <laughs> so my last question for you, if you could be any animal out of all of the millions of species in the world, what animal would you be? Oh, boy. I think either either a hawk or a dolphin, I think. You know, something Ooh, that would... okay. Very different. Yeah, give you some some really different experience than kind of the terrestrial, you know, uh, experience that we have as humans, you know, mm-hmm. uh, being able to fly or being able to, to swim. Uh, it'd be a hard choice between the two. You could just use and your Harry choice. Potter wand and just <laughs> go right. between them both. <laughs> My last question for you today And I have to look at my notes to make sure I ask it correctly because I just wrote it down and I just changed it before we did the podcast today. What is your go-to, I'm going to say coffee or beverage, because I don't know if you drink coffee or not, order in Owensboro? You know, I'm I'm not a coffee drinker, but I love, I'm kind of an old school, you know, I love a vanilla Coke. Oh, um, yeah. I I really just love the the taste of of the cola and uh, and a little vanilla flavoring. Um, that to me is just a a real luxury that I ha- I really have no business drinking a a soda like that with so many you know empty calories in it. Uh, but uh, but it does really uh, I, I do really enjoy it. <laughs> Yeah, where do you find one in Owensboro? Um, at, at Sonic. At Sonic. Oh, yeah, they have everything. Yeah, okay. So I, I will sometimes get a vanilla Coke at Sonic, and I'll, and I'll set it in my, uh, you know, in the cup holder in the truck, and it'll last me, it'll last me a week. I'll just kind of sip it and, <laughs> and enjoy the taste, you know. <laughs> Oh, and you get God. the 44 ounce, right? You got to get the big one. <laughs> That's an unhealthy choice. <laughs> oh, um, I'm not going to admit to it, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, Dr. Tidwell, this has been lovely today. Um, wow. Thank you so much yes, for saying thank yes. You. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me and uh, and for being advocates for, for those with that. Uh, with trauma and and uh, for all the great work that you do. It was very nice to meet you, Shelby, and, and uh, to be with you again, Jennifer. Absolutely. And for all of our listeners out there, we want to say thank you so much for tuning in. And you can change the world tomorrow just by simply start listening today and have a lovely day. Have a lovely day, everyone. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Well, we've made it to the end of our episode. We want to thank you for listening. We hope you'll take something you heard today and use it to change the world tomorrow. We wanted to thank our music producer, Seth Hedges, from Uriah Wild Media. His website is in the show description. Also, a big shout out to Roddy Newton, our technical advisor. See you next time. 
This project was supported by grant number VOCA 2020 Green River 26, awarded through the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet by the U.S. Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet or the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you.